Hello, and welcome to Act Natural Podcast. Um, my name is Brian Middleton. I am Heather Middleton. And today we have David, Dr. David Purvis joining us to speak to us about self-help CBT. Welcome, Dr. Da- Dr. Purvis. Hi. Hi. Nice for ha- thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. All right. So we're starting off with um, some something pretty big. Uh, you contacted me and uh, told me a little bit about self-help CBT. Could you give us a little bit of um, an introduction to what that is? Sure. Um, I've been a, <clears throat> a psychotherapist, I guess. Well, I was a research psychologist first, and I've been in therapy I think I'm going to say like from 92, something like that, you know, it's hard to remember. I've got to work it back on my fingers. And when I first started out, it was very much um, what we might call a person-centered or humanistic approach, which basically, as far as I could figure out, was people have it within themselves to heal themselves. And the therapist's job was to listen, basically, um, validate their experiences, you know, and kind of confer uh, you know, positive regard and authenticity and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And there's never an em- there's never an emphasis on doing anything more than that. So that's very basic counselling. You know, person centred skills really. Um, and way back in the '90s, my brother, who lives in America, came to visit me, and he's a computer scientist. And we're talking about depression at the time, and he said, "Look, why don't we uh, why don't we build a computer program? Because he's always interested in modelling behaviour." why don't we build a computer program to like treat depression? I thought, fine, right? This is long before YouTube. I mean, mm-hmm. I remember around that time, you know, looking on the internet and thinking, well, this internet thing, it's all very well, but there's, there's not much on it. You know, it's, <laughs> <laughs> you guys might be too young to remember that, but like, yeah, it's, you know. Oh, I remember anyway, it. <laughs> so we built com- first impressions too. <laughs> <laughs> we built a computer program. It took us five years to do it. He was in America, of course, I was here. So actually now, I mean, he left when I was, he left to go to um, away when I was 11. And so he, ne- he never came back. So it gave us an opportunity to have a relationship. We, we, we built this huge program and we called it Blues Be Gone. And it was entirely standalone. So there's no human contact with it whatsoever. But it was quite clever because we had cartoon heads that talked to you and the, the program learned a bit about you. And it kind of re- it knew what you did and it reflected stuff that you'd done back, right? Anyway, I put this program through clinical trials in the National Health Service here. And it, it, it looked like 60% of people who had clinical depression were cured. So, you know, there's a, like a cutoff on a, on a scale, back mm-hmm. depression inventory. 60% were cured. Another 10% did really well, but they didn't quite reach the cured criteria. 50% were cured of anxiety. And another 10% had substantial um, improvement, but, you know, didn't reach the cured criteria. And then I followed them up, uh, I think 21 months later, the depressed people had uh, maintained and the anxiety people had got a bit better. Hmm. So what does this mean, right? These are people who are just like, they're not at all selected. The only exclusion criteria would be, you know, um, non-alcoholic and, uh, Probably, probably not like a really severe mental health problem, right? But otherwise, not at all selected, just the general population that would go to a doctor. Yeah. And, you know, in, in the end, on our, on our randomized control trial, we had hundreds and hundreds of people. So people can help themselves 
if you give them the tools, the right resources to do it, they can actually help themselves and they can help themselves all the way through to the point of actually not needing any more psychological help, not needing a therapist. So I thought about this. I thought, well, actually, this is a, this is a revolution in mental health in a sense, right? So what does a therapist do? In my opinion, you know, obviously we have the, the working alliance and the therapeutic relationship. Okay, fine. A therapist teaches a client tools to use to resolve their problem. Yeah. That's basically it. And if you wanted it even simpler, I suppose, it would be the object of, the, the, the object of therapy really is to change the belief people have about themselves. Change the beliefs people have about themselves, right? And why can't you do that remotely? Why do you actually need to have a therapist teach it to you? When you could actually just, uh, in principle, watch a video, but it's a bit more. It's a little bit more complicated than that, because in in my programs, I actually teach you the tools and I give you the story and the kind of you know the narrative that works with the tools, because it, it, the whole thing is a piece. But but anyway, I think that um, for a lot of people, not everyone, for a lot of people, self help CBT is a revolution in mental health, and it's a it's a way forward because. Um, you know, a person can only work with a small number of people, you know, relatively speaking. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. You're always limited by how many hours you can spend working with someone, but with something like self-help CBT, you know, anybody could use a program and everyone could be helped in principle. Yeah. It's got to be the way forward. It has to be the way forward. But the uptake is, 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 well, the uptake is not what it could be because the entrenched system in a sense of you know, have to have a therapist, it, it, you know, like pushes back. But anyway, that's it. That's self-help CBT in a nutshell. Okay. Yeah. I, I, um, I definitely see where you're going with that. And I, and I agree that that's an important approach that needs to be taken because um, a lot of times we have people who, well, first off, there's a social stigma behind having a therapist, which whether right or wrong, it's there. Um, and then the other side of that is that um, there are some people who just aren't motivated to talk with other people. Like yeah. they, they, they're very private people and that's fine. Like that's, that's how they are. It's okay. Um, I, I have quite a few friends who are like that where when I interact with them, it's, it's once every few years and it's great we catch up we're connected and then we disconnect and there was a point in time where i was worried that uh that 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 meant that they weren't wanting to connect with me and then i realized oh no this isn't about me this is this is about them and i can accept them for who they are and i think that that approach needs to be taken more with mental health as well like there's this kind of this false, I believe, stigma of saying that in order for you to process, you have to vocalize, you have to put it out there. You have to have somebody else that you bear your soul to. Does yeah. that, yeah. is that kind of, am I hitting around those areas that self-help CBT is trying to address? Yeah, I think, so. yeah, I think you've got it. I mean, Obviously, everyone's different, and everyone has a different experience. But I, but when you're creating programs that, that in a sense, are generic, um, they have to have enough variation in the in the material that you present that it captures quite you know quite a lot of people. But anyway, I can think of it quite simply, right? 
Mm-hmm. I think that, that psychological problems could be thought of as problems, just a problem. Now, human beings are always solving problems, right? If your car's broken, you might take it to a garage and that solves the problem, right? But people don't, well, the problem solving strategies that people use with mental health are pretty poor. Avoidance, that's the best number one, avoidance of mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. We're very <laughs> good at that. Yeah, <laughs> avoidance works pretty well with a lot of stuff, right? If you leave it, you know, it'll probably get better anyway. So avoidance is number, number one. Number two is to sort of deny it. And I guess number three is to um, just suffer, really, which isn't you know, much of a problem-solving strategy. And I think that people don't, and I don't think they're empowered, but it's just not, it's just not part of the cultural narrative to, re, to think of mental health problems like depression or anxiety as a problem. And if you can think of it as a problem, then all of a sudden, a whole lot of problem-solving strategies open up to you. Let me, let me give you an example. <clears throat> My definition of anxiety, well, you know, to, to, to a degree is this, right? Anxiety right. is an overestimation of threat. Your brain is overestimating the threat you're under. That's panic. a beautiful example. Yeah, I like that yeah. a lot. Yeah, well, panic is just a ramped up version of that, right? Except in panic, it feels like an annihilation. You know, it's a, it's a really, you're at the peak of the mountain of, of anxiety, but panic grows in anxiety. So if anxiety is an overestimation of threat, and I can prove it to you, right? If you were to say to me, I feel anxious, okay, how anxious are you? Zero, not at all, tense as bad as it can be. You're sitting in my office, I feel like an eight. Okay. Where's the threat? Mm-hmm. There isn't a threat. Okay, well, why are you an eight? I just am. Okay. Now, there are two realities, right? <laughs> well, in this conversation, there are two realities. I'll give you a clue. The first one, Brian, is external reality. What's the second one? Internal reality. <laughs> <laughs> well done, you. Right, yeah. So your, your, your physiology was designed to cope with external threats. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we, uh, if, if, your, if your threat detection and, and arousal and f- like fight and flight response did not function, we would not be speaking because your ancestors would be toast, right? Yeah. <laughs> so your, your anxiety system was designed to cope with external threats. Sitting in my office, eight out of 10, you haven't got an external threat. Therefore, your, your physiology is, is inappropriately responding to threat. It's overestimating threat. You're under, you are not actually under any threat. Well, if we can accept that you're not under any threat, the next question come, becomes, okay, well, how do we retrain your brain to recognize that you're not under a threat? Because that be, that's a problem to solve, right? Yeah. And there's, you know, there's tons of different ways that you could do that, but that's simply a problem. And there would be a lot of, you know, a number of strategies that we would entertain to try to do that. So um, a lot of times when I'm talking with folks who are um, dealing with the problem of anxiety and depression, both problems I've dealt with and I'm, and I'm aware of in myself, mm-hmm. um, they describe it as my anxiety or my depression. And um, I've learned very quickly to ask the question, if that anxiety or if you can make that anxiety or depression 
something that doesn't have control over you, would you? Because it used to be that what I would do is start sharing with them the tools that I have. And I get a very interesting reaction from quite a few folks of eyes narrowing, treating me like I'm a threat, um, and then getting defensive and, and such. But now I ask that question and I watch their body language and I watch how they respond. And if they respond with open body language and, and an open response of, yes, I definitely would love that, then I share. The, the knowledge that I have and, and point them towards resources that I know about. Um, but if they're very closed off, then I'll be like, okay, well, I hope that, I hope that everything works out for you. And I kind of leave it at that. Um, is that, is that a common challenge that you face um, with folks is, is people who are so stuck within their story of my anxiety or my depression that they don't want to let go of it? that they want it to be a part of their identity instead of a problem to solve? Yeah. I mean, certainly long-term chronic problems do become part of the identity. Yeah. <laughs> um, the people that I would encounter though would self-select because um, these days I'm in private practice. So, you know, I'm not going to, no one's going to come to see me really unless they're interested in, you know, something that's useful, let's say. Okay. Uh, and I commonly share on YouTube, I have a YouTube channel, and I commonly share on YouTube, you know, uh, clinical progress of people, you know. Okay. I had, you know, I did, I did a video, I suppose, a couple of months ago now. Actually, more than a couple of months. Gosh, we've been locked down for six months. So last year, let's call it, <laughs> um, you know, we're, we're th I discharged three clients in one week, right? An average of, like, eight sessions, 12 sessions, and I'd put the scores on the, on the whiteboard, you know? And this would be very common for me, you know? Someone who's engaged, who wants to have a changed, a different outcome, we can, we can you know, relatively straightforwardly go from like high anxiety to cured in a sense, right? Mm -hmm. Even depression to cured. It's not, not a problem. It's, it's a, it's a well-trodden path. And there's tons of, of really, uh, lots and thousands of examples of people, tens of thousands actually, of people having gone through this path. It's not, it's not mysterious. Now, I think people, because, it, because like you say, my depression, my anxiety, it feels very personal, but it's actually, and whilst it is personal, the individual, the processes that they're going through are not at all personal. It's, it's similar for everybody, you know? I mean, I, sure, <laughs> I shared my kind of quick characterization of anxiety. My characterization of depression is this, it's an underestimation of strengths and resources and an overestimation of faults and feelings. So that's kind of fairly simple, really. Universally true, but also fairly simple. And it does give us a start then, you know. Could you say that one more time? Because uh, I want to... Yeah, it's an, it's an underestimation of strengths and resources and an overestimation of faults and feelings. Huh. Now... When you actually look at the research on this, it actually is exactly that. And, and I, mean, I won't describe it to you because it's a bit complicated, but basically non-depressed people overestimate themselves to some degree, in fairness, right? <laughs> but depressed people, they underestimate themselves uh, significantly in every domain. And so, so if, if uh, non-depressed people overestimate themselves, Depressed people overestimate themselves less. 
So the, so the, 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 their range is shorter. Non-depressively like this, depressively like this. So all of a sudden now we've got something to work on, right? A more mm -hmm. accurate self-representation, if you like. And I would say to people, <laughs> I say to people, how tall are you? How tall are you, Brian? About six foot. Okay. What would be the point in believing you're five foot five? Good question. How tall are you, Heather? Five, six. What would be the point in believing you're four foot nine? I would get disability for being short. <laughs> you can, but I, I think you need to be a little bit shorter than that. I, I, well, actually, I don't think it's I don't think it's disability. It's accommodations. Yeah, there we yeah, go. Yeah, it's, it's, that's, that's what I. Let me help you out. The actual answer is there's no point. Right. So, so what's the point in underestimating yourself? You are the height that you are. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, you want to talk a little bit about acceptance and commitment therapy, you know? Um, I never met a person who struggled with low mood that accurately judged themselves in any kind of domain, really. Mm. You know, so underestimation is a huge problem in almost every psychological, you know, diagnosis in a sense, right? And so if we think about that, as a, as a problem, now we have the task of helping people to more accurately represent themselves. You know, so now we have a, now we have a problem and we have a solution path. That's self-help CBT in a sense, isn't it? It's, it's thinking about, it's always challenging the idea that actually I'm six foot, but I feel like I'm five foot five. Now, a lot of people say, I feel like an imposter or I feel like I'm not good enough, or I feel like something bad is about to happen, mm -hmm. or I feel like I'm gonna get found out, okay? So those are all underestimations, because I personally have never met anybody who said any of those things that wasn't actually pretty good, pretty, pretty successful in many respects. Yeah, imposter syndrome, I, it, it hits me, it hits me yeah. on a pretty regular basis. It's like, <laughs> am I really the one making the calls here? But then the flip side of that is, is that I, run through the things that I've mastered, um, the things that I've overcome, the challenges I've faced. And I remind myself, yes, you are. And it's healthy for you to ask yourself, am I really? But then it's also healthy to say, I need to step forward and do the best that I can. And if I fail, it's okay. Good. So now we have, we can, we can have a discussion about what we know and how we feel. Mm-hmm. Because a big element of, of, the, the, of, the, sort of the, the problem that people have, in a sense, is that they believe how they feel tells them something meaningful about how they are, who they are, where they are, what they are. Okay? And we have a motto over here, which I don't know if you'd have in the, in the United States, but you know, feelings are not facts. I've heard and, that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so... If, I, if someone said to me, I feel, like I, I feel like a fraud, okay, I'd say, okay, well, you know, what have you done? Make a list of what they've done. Okay, so in external reality, you're perfectly successful. But in internal reality, 
you don't f you feel like a fraud, right? So we mm -hmm. have a disparity between what we know to be true and how you feel. And that disparity there, that's our basic problem in a, <laughs> in a graphical form in a sense, right? So what do we have to do to resolve this? We have to change how you feel to be more in line with reality. So now, again, we have a, a simple delineation of the problem and you know, then we can just work towards having a solution. Okay. And typically, you know, I, I say to people, if you want to get good at something, what do you have to do? If you want to get good at something, Heather, what do you have to do? Practice. All right, okay. So suppose we worked out a solution, right, and we practiced it. What do you think would happen? It would, yeah, we, yeah. A little better, a little better. <laughs> but, so, right, so if I saw someone who was like 40 years of age, and I said, okay, well, how long have you been, like, anxious? And, they, you know, since I was 14, so how many, what's the math, 20, 16 years, mm -hmm. maybe? Okay. Okay, so how long have you been practicing being anxious? 16 years. Okay. So you would be an expert at being anxious. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. And how long, have you, how long have you practiced not being anxious? I haven't. Not at all. Okay. So we have to accept and we have to bring front and center the principle of practice into self-help CBT, right? You yeah. can have a session with a therapist and you can have an insight uh, because, you know, insight-based therapies, yeah, yeah, I feel like I've had an insight, yeah. But if you're not doing something different and if you're not practicing that thing that's different, you are going to end up going back to the thing that you've practiced. The brain loves it patterns has, and efficiency. Yep. It has to be, yeah, absolutely. It has to be that way. There isn't, you know, there's not a magic where, you know, oh, I played this tune on the piano once and I'm going to be able to play it expertly for the rest of my life without practicing. Well, it's funny you should throw the, the term magic out because uh, a good friend and I, we have a lot of discussions. He's, he's trained in anthropology and um, he, uh, he broke down magic in a more scientific term. He, he, the way he put it is little rituals um, and Heather may have been a part of that discussion. I'm pretty sure you were little rituals that you do that have a massive impact later. And so in a way, what you're describing is a sort of magic, because if you do the little ritual, the little practice, the little thing over and over and over again, then that has a massive impact on your life and it can influence other people's lives too. So Maybe it is kind of a magic, but it's the it's it's the magic of science. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I agree with those two words going together. <laughs> there's an awful lot of there's an awful lot of stuff on the internet which which uses the principle of magic. Yeah. Well, I, I'm I'm trying to uh, I'm trying to hijack a term that is is used to uh, reinforce superstition and say perhaps instead of being superstitious about this, you can look at this as a little ritual that you can do on a daily basis or even more often or maybe less often that can strengthen you and that, they get, that gives you the power over yeah. your own destiny instead of being a victim of circumstance. Yeah, I, 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 yeah it's empowerment. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. When, I, when, I do, when I set stuff up, I typically get people to do things two and three hundred times a day. Mm. <laughs> well, it, but, you know, with that level of practice you notice a change in a week well and and to to backtrack very briefly i um 
I was having that sense of not accomplishing anything, being a failure at work because um, I had a lot of responsibility and there were a lot of things that were being demanded of me. And there were a lot of people who were relying on me. And at the end of the day, I was feeling like a failure. And so I was trying to break that down. And I realized that what I really needed to do was to keep track of what I was actually accomplishing. So for the next week, I had a Word document up on my computer. And as soon as I humanly could, so sometimes it was an hour later, if I was responding to a crisis, I would just write down a brief blurb on all the things that I did. And at the end of that week, it was a 20 page long document. And I was looking back at the actual record of the things that I accomplished. And instead of feeling like a failure, I felt very accomplished. Yeah. That's a brilliant example. Yeah. A brilliant example. But how many people would take the time and the bother to do that? Not many. Not many, you know, not many. And I think that's the, the, the problem it's very easy for us to fall into the, I don't know, the comfortable, uncomfortable position of, of feeling you know, like a fraud. But then that feeling is habitual and it is practiced. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's much harder to do something constructive. The thing is, I do think you need an overarching story, a narrative that makes it sensible to do something constructive. You know, I think that's an important thing. Um, let me ask you a question. How does any information get into your brain? What is the means by which information gets into your brain? I'm leaving that for for you to answer. I'm talking too much. (laughs) Okay. Um, I don't know. It's it's all the ones. Um, Because I can say, you know, you you can get it in through observations. You can get it in, you know, through your senses, really. Senses. Right. But all all sensory information actually comes in in code form. Photons of reflected light, sound waves, um, molecules of substance, uh, molecules of, of, uh, of substance on the tongue, and then uh, nerve transmission through, through sensation, let's say. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, right, so your brain actually has to decode all sensory information. But you think that you're looking at me, but you're not really. You just think you are, right? Mm-hmm. You're looking at you're looking at your internal representation of what you, of what your brain has constructed to be my appearance. But in fact, you don't know, you don't actually know whether I look like this and, and you two could not really decide easily, you know, if, if, if uh, I actually look the same to both of you. So your brain has a, a role in creating a virtual reality representation of reality. Mm-hmm. It's called the internal, it's called the internal working model. And, it's actually, you know, it's, it's, it's what we live by. We do not respond to what's happening. We respond to our internal working model of what's happening. That seem fair? That's right. very fair. Yeah. yeah. But if your internal working model is distorted in some way, mm-hmm. if you're in the habit of underestimating yourself or if you're in the habit of, of finding threat through childhood experiences, through world, through, uh, you know, adult experiences like PTSD, et cetera, then your working model, that basically your model of the world is not accurately representing reality for you. So, you know, your, your kind of irrational or unusual response makes perfect sense, but it's not adaptive in living in a kind of a modern world, you know, in, in living with people. So, well, then, 
add to that yeah. the fact that memory is fluid and that we can alter our memories. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not, it's not that filing cabinet or computer system that so many people like to portray it as. Um, it's definitely subjective and the, your, your mood or your perception at the time can, can increase or decrease the, the values and increase and decrease the exaggeration. Then that's that even, it's even more interesting because it's like, Oh, our memories are not as reliable as we'd like to think they are. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. But we don't know, but folks don't know that. Mm -hmm. They don't know that their memory is, is likely to be biased. It's always biased mm. because the filters that that, may, that keep most of the information out of your brain, those filters filter things based upon what we call top-down concepts, right? Uh, so if you're depressed, or, well, anxious even better. If you're you know very anxious, your brain is going to preferentially let on let in to your system any information that that could be threatening, and it's going to keep out information um, reflecting safety. Because information which is threatening is more useful to you in a, in a threat sort of prime state. But then your experience would be, right, that car nearly hit me. Yeah, I, 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 I drove home and, you know, like I had two people pulled out and I could have, I, I just missed two crashes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Well, how many crashes have you had in your life? I, I work with a lot of traffic accidents. How many crashes have you had in your life? I've had one. How long have you many years been driving? I've been driving 30 years. Yeah, but since I had my crash, people are absolutely, they, they just don't care about anybody on the road now. I'm always having near misses. Okay. But like before, the previous 30 years, you weren't having any near misses at all. You know, everyone now is driving different because I had an accident. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we can tease that out a little bit and we say, actually, it's because you're primed now. Now you've had a shock and now your system is trying to keep you safe and it's doing that by making you very wary. The paradox is trying to keep you safe by making you wary actually makes you, <laughs> makes you a more dangerous driver. I was talking to a woman some years ago. She says, oh, I, just, I had an accident. She was sitting at traffic lights and she got shunted in the back end. Uh, and she wasn't particularly hurt, right? But completely out of the blue and she came to see me i don't know maybe a year later you know she says oh, i'm just terrible on the road i can't i can't bear i can't bear anybody coming up behind me you know I, I, stopping at traffic lights i'm always looking in the rearview mirror i said okay so how much time do you think you spend looking in the rearview mirror oh she says i'm i'm i'm, I'm looking in the rearview mirror 70 percent of the time okay and which way are you driving she says i'm driving forwards okay so <laughs> you're driving forwards, you're spending 70% of the time looking in the back. Is it any wonder you feel vulnerable on the road? She went, ah, yeah. Of course, the people behind you are not your responsibility. It's the people in front. They're the ones that are your responsibility. Anyway, we resolved it, you know. But she thought she was keeping herself safe by watching out for people who were going to hit her. Thing is, that actually is pretty dangerous. Mm. So one of the goals of self-help CBT is to change that inner working model to be more useful. Now, in fairness, it doesn't have to be exactly accurate, but it needs to be more useful. Mm-hmm. You know, people need to get back to being a little bit more normal in a sense of overestimating yourself to some degree. Okay. Feeling a little bit more confident than perhaps, you know, you are, but then actually, you know, in all likelihood, it will go well and you'll be able to do it fine. You know, pushing yourself and feeling comfortable within that. 
um, stretch, if you like. So um, one of the things that, uh, that, that I've dealt with for years is um, an anxiety response that is, is atypical. My, my anxiety response is to feel anxious and then get angry. <laughs> uh, or maybe it's not atypical. Maybe it's just not well understood um, by the general public. I'm sure I've talked to plenty of, of, of people who are more experienced in this area. They're like, yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. Uh, but um, something that helped me, and I didn't have access to these tools. I was, uh, I'm, I'm, very, I'm very exploratory and reflective. And so I've, I read books and I ask questions and I talk with people and I process and I learn. Um, that way. And, and I wish I had had this, uh, these, these tools because it would have sped up the process. But regardless, this I got there. Um, the way that I described it for years was reality is a wall and people try to, to travel parallel to the wall. And when anxiety or depression hits is when they're bouncing off the wall, when they're not actually interacting with reality or perceiving reality fully they're there and then they hit the wall and it's not quite what they perceived it to be. Um, would that be a good, I guess, model for looking at it? I'm sure, I'm sure there's other better models, but it's something that just the way I looked at it for years and years. Well, everyone can make their own, um, I suppose, interpretation of it. I mean, I, I, I completely agree that there's a problem in a sense with reality. Mm -hmm. um, I would suggest that it's more, in, from, in my, the way I would explain it, is that people are spending too much time in internal reality mm. and believing what that tells them and, and likely to be distorted in a number of ways and not, not spending enough time in actually an external reality and actually seeing what's there now, uh, you wouldn't know, in a sense, which one you're in. But for instance, if you think about um, worry, worry, rumination, overthinking, those would all be good examples of spending a lot of time in internal reality. You know? And it would seem like a sensible thing to do because people don't worry about you know, pointless things. They worry about important, catastrophic things. You know? mm -hmm. uh, what, if, what if my family goes out and gets killed? What if, what if the plane crashes? What if we get uh, COVID-19 and die? You know, these are all, you know, important questions. So, you know, you can't, you can't negate the importance of the question. You know, you can't say, but, but really, with self-help CBT, I would say, well, okay, these are important questions. When will you find out if the plane's going to crash? Well, it's crashing. Uh, past, present, or future? Future. Present. Right, present. Uh, when you would find out. Oh, when you would find out, yeah, for present. Yeah, yeah. but if you're sitting in my office telling me that I'm really worried about whether the plane's going to crash, right, you'll find out in the future. But you're trying to solve the problem in the present. Mm -hmm. So, you're, you know, your brain solves problems. So you're asking your brain to solve a problem and your brain does not have enough information to know whether the plane's going to crash. This is where the magic, people get do the magic stuff. But anyway, mm -hmm. right. So you're asking your brain to solve the problem. The answer is in the future, but you're worrying about in the present. So you're, you're creating a catastrophic imagination of, of how that would be. You're 
uh, from the future. You're bringing it back in the present and you're suffering a version of the anxiety that you'd feel or that the fear you'd feel if the plane was to crash. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny you should mention plane because a lot of times there's a lot of, there's more, there's more anxiety than just the plane crashing around planes. You're at the airport, yeah. you're on the plane, you start leaving the airport, you're flying away, and then the plane turns around and comes back because there's an error or some sort of issue with it. This actually happened to us. Yes. Uh, and, and then you're upset because you're going to be late okay. for, for your destination. And you're, you're, you're again thinking of the future, not thinking about the present, which of the present is, Oh, somebody caught a potentially catastrophic error and they're taking care of it so that the plane doesn't crash. Yeah. So it's being, being present in another way. um, A lot of times people are anxious about airplanes would be quite happy with that actually, because then their worst fear has been confirmed. I've known people say, I'm, Terrified of flying, but as soon as the turbulence starts, I'm good. <laughs> now that you know, now it's it's fine. There's no uncertainty now, right? We know it's all going to go horribly wrong. Yeah. Um, so, to sort of finish my story about worry, um, mm. you're asking your brain to solve a problem, and it can't solve the problem. That is an entirely pointless activity. So, um, you know, when we're when we're trying to sort of um, define like really troubling human processes, we can kind of simplify them down so that with worry, you're spending too much time in internal reality. You say bouncing off internal, yeah, fine enough. You're spending too much time in internal, uh, in internal reality, not doing anything productive and not actually getting on with things which are productive in external reality. You know, so it's about, about modifying that balance so that we're actually a little bit more connected and calibrated with reality rather than spending time in our internal reality. Here's an interesting fact for you guys. <clears throat> mm-hmm. You would think that you see the world um, as a moving image, right? As a movie. Yeah? Yeah. You don't. You actually, your, your, your eyes, when you're reading a book, what happens is your eyes fixate on a spot on the page and then they jump, that's called a saccade, to the next fixation. So you do fixation, jump, fixation, jump, fixation, jump. Your your brain stitches that together so that you just see the, the whole thing as a, as a flow. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you're looking at me, you think that I'm moving around, but I'm not actually. Your brain is taking static pictures of me and it's stitching them together into a movie. And you're blind. As your eyes jump to the next static picture, you're blind. Because if, if you were actually seeing things as your eyes are jumping, the world would seem crazy. Mm-hmm. So, if you, so if you add up all those little jumps in your day, you're blind for about 40 minutes of every day. Wow. And you, and you didn't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember reading something along the lines that we, we, we miss about 1%. Um, and that actually happened a little bit ago. I was, I was driving and Heather's with me and and uh, a cyclist was coming up and I didn't see him like no memory of, of 
processing and I'm always looking out for cyclists because I've actually had a couple run-ins, one of which was a a kid tried evil Knieveling over my car of all things while I was driving, um, which, you know, I had no way of controlling that. Um, So, you know, I'm always keeping a very close eye out for cyclists. And if Heather hadn't been there to be like, there's a cyclist there, I probably would have accidentally run him off the road. Um, And yeah. And that missing of that information is is uh, very common. Well, of course, you, you, you know you might be you might be elsewhere in mm-hmm. your mind, you know, but your mind will be expecting to see a cyclist. I mean, there's just so many things. But that's why it's called an accident. I have seen so many cyclists, and I've seen so many motorists. You know, he looked. The, the cyclist says the driver looked at me. He looked at me, and then he turned in front of me, and I went over the top of his car. Yeah, well, he might have looked at you, but he didn't see you. He might have looked in your direction, but he didn't see you. Yeah, no one deliberately creates an accident. They just simply don't register the information. That's why it's called an accident in a way. Mm-hmm. That's not really not the problem. It's the problem for the person who's on the bicycle, but for the person who causes the accident, that's the problem is that they now have to come to terms with how is it that I could actually kill somebody? I'm not that sort of person. Mm-hmm. You know, it's quite a quite a difficult experience to to resolve something which was just random and and accidental in a sense. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I, I had a question. Uh, huh. We've touched on it a little bit uh, through this discussion, uh, but the role of stories that you use in communicating these tools, uh, and it's something that I come across a lot in uh, ACT, but in also other uh, CBT books in terms of the story. And I hear, uh, sometimes I hear, Oh, stories are bad, you know, and the or other times stories, you know, they're a part of us. They are, uh, they're ingrained in us in our biology because that's how we've communicated lessons for so long without having to actually experience, uh, terrible events. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so things that you've, uh, expressed throughout, I've kind of gathered that, at least in your viewpoint, there's a difference between these internal stories and these external stories that are happening. Uh, and so I guess I just want to touch on that a little bit more and uh, gather a few more thoughts on that because I love storytelling and it's, I also consider myself a storyteller. So I was like, hey, stories. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I think that there are definitely, um, there's definitely disparity between the stories that we believe about ourselves and our experience. Now, that, I think that will be true of everybody. The, the, the question is, is it a problem? You know, for some people, they can feel, they can feel like top of the, you know, king of the world, and that's not a problem, even though they're not king of the world, right? So <laughs> it can go in different directions in a sense. Um, the problem is when the story that you're telling yourself is, is unhelpful. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem with that is, it might have started off being helpful, but it's run out of its shelf life and it's become unhelpful. So, for instance, I, um, I talked to a lot of people who had what we might call troubling ch- childhoods, um, say parental disagreement, breakups, uh, and like an absent parent or something like that, you know. And they grow up in a, with a feeling of not being able to control stuff. They feel a bit out of control. Mm. So what they do is they turn into, well, they can go one of two ways. They can give up, mm-hmm. just give up, and perhaps not do anything in life, really almost. 
or they can often become control freaks where they're trying to control as much as possible because that work that can work well now if you take it to its extreme it can become an obsessive compulsive kind of idea right but in the as a, for a young child being able to control stuff just how your room looks or you know the things that you touch and the things that you manage that gives you that an element of control and that can be fine when you're six seven eight nine ten right but when you're 44 being not being able to control stuff is a real problem because in fact we can't control stuff i never met a control freak who actually had control <laughs> and so yeah one of, the, one of the things i do is i teach people to have real emotional control because because it's that's an element a transdiagnostic element of every psychological problem there is not a single psychological problem where there is a where there is not a problem of control um and that's just it to a degree that's a story right mm -hmm. because you, you tell yourself that you can control the external world by doing stuff as a child, whatever it is, it could be anything. And you're still telling yourself that story when you're 44, but you know, you're successful. You have perhaps, you know, a hundred people work for you and you know, they do other sorts of stuff. There's absolutely no way you can have enough control over all of that to feel that you're in charge, that you're on top of things. Mm -hmm. You got to let go. You've got to delegate. And so that, that story, I have to feel in control, otherwise something bad will happen. Um, you know, it becomes a real problem. So I think that things can start off for reasonably good reasons, and then they can become unhelpful. And that's a long journey, and you can have an awful lot of unhelpful experiences before it actually goes, you know what, this is killing me, I need to do something about it. You know, you can have years of misery. Oh, it's, you know, it's... A, just a nightmare really isn't it <laughs> yeah in a way um shall i tell you uh, i have a story which i use it's quite a nice one um it's a little bit off piece for, for act it's in a sense but it's like it, this is how it is right okay what is the only way you can know what a computer is doing now these stories are not that complicated right so don't overthink mm -hmm. it um, the only way that you could know what a computer is doing is by seeing what stimuli it's emitting. So if the, if it's putting out sound, then it's emitting sound. If it's putting out visuals to a monitor, it's putting out those visuals. That's the you're only bit, way you could truly know. You're a bit technical, Brian. I would say, <laughs> look, look at it. It's, okay. <laughs> okay. Right. Here's yeah. Sense look at it. Right. Now, here's, here's one for you guys. Right. Okay. Um, what color is the front door of your the place where you live? White. White. How do you know, Brian? Because I installed the door. <laughs> no, you just looked at it in your mind. <laughs> That's true. Right? Okay. So, if I ask you a question about your past, in the main, you will bring it up to the screen in your mind and you will inspect that image and that's how you know the answer. Right, so a computer has a screen. Your brain has a screen. We might call it your mind in a sense, right? Mm -hmm. Now, computer's doing a thousand things behind the scenes, right? And you have no clue. Your brain is doing a thousand things behind the scenes. You've got no clue. A computer runs programs and 
those programs give it the outcome. The out, you get the outcome from the program, okay? So if it's, a, if it's a word program, it will give you a word processor outcome. The programs that you run in here will give you an outcome. So if you want to run a, a navigation program, if you get in your car and you say, I'm just gonna drive to the, to the supermarket, your brain will run a program that gives you the direction. It will also run a program to drive the car. It will also run a program to be able to walk into the supermarket and buy what you want, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's all programs. And you don't have to interact with them at all. But your brain also runs programs that were set up in youth and are unhelpful and persist in being unhelpful and you don't know that they're running. Hmm. You just experience the outcome. So when someone says, for instance, I am anxious, I would say, well, uh, I could say this. I don't actually say this, but I could say this. Okay, what's the problem that you have now that you've come to see me? I'm anxious. No, that's not the problem. Mm -hmm. That's a consequence of the problem. Okay. Now, I wouldn't actually talk, I wouldn't necessarily say this like that, but I'm trying to get to the point that, that, that everybody who has psychological problems experiences consequences. Mm -hmm. The consequences caused by running a program that they're probably unaware of. So the job of the therapist, if they're any good, is to figure out what the program is and change it, challenge it, modify it, and practice something uh, as an alternative. Right? So yeah. if you're running, um, well, worry is a good example, right? Mm -hmm. I worry about chicken. I worry about money. I worry about the election. I worry about COVID. I worry about finances. I worry about retirement. I worry about children. I worry about accidents. I worry about climate. I worry about politics. What is my problem? Worry. Right. It doesn't matter what I worry about, right? People get, oh, I'm so worried about this. I'm so worried about that. I'm so worried about this. Yeah, irrelevant. The problem is that you're running a program that says, I worry. Mm -hmm. So we change that program, you stop worrying. So <laughs> that's a story. <laughs> There's an so, origin story for you. <laughs> so um, I'm going to present a quick scenario. And it, this, is, this is definitely an oversimplification, um, or at least the response is probably going to be, because this is a process that takes a while, I'm sure. And, and each individual is unique in how they respond. But scenario is a young man um, sees two dogs fighting that his family has a relationship with the, the people who own the dogs, steps in between the dogs to try to stop them from fighting, and one of the dogs bites him, causing damage that requires him to go to the hospital, get stitches, you know, make sure that he got tetanus shots, all that stuff. And moving forward that young man who previously loved dogs and had no problem with them now has um, a lot of fear and anxiety surrounding seeing dogs. Doesn't matter what size dog, big dog, little dog, um, just seeing it and having that pervasive fear of being bitten. So if that young man now say young adult comes to you and says, I have a lot of anxiety about dogs. And I want to, I want to be able to live my life. What would be, I guess, a simplified steps that you would take to help him to see the program and help to rewrite it? Right. Uh, what's the catastrophic belief? The belief is I'm going to get bit. 
yeah, uh, yeah, but that's not it, right? You could get bit, you know, but you're going to get what's happening, what's going to happen when you get bitten? That's not strong enough to cause you such a big problem. What's, what's going to happen when you get bitten? It's going to hurt. Sure, yeah, okay. I, I could die. Um, yeah, so we have to figure out the underlying belief. We also have to figure out the mental representation. What's, so when you think about a dog, mm-hmm. when you actually think about a dog, what, what actually comes onto the screen in your mind? So we, we, could, we could think of it like, how do you talk about dogs? How do you think about dogs? What do you see when you, when you actually consider dogs? And then what do you do? So we've got the kind of the four elements, you know, of the, of the cognitive behavioral kind of simplification, you know, thoughts, emotions, behaviors, sensations. Okay. And so we can intervene at any one of those, right? When you see a dog, you're probably safer than you feel. What's the fear that you, what's the, what is the emotion that you feel like they be fear? Okay. So that's mm-hmm. those two. Right? What do you do when you see a dog run away? What's your sensations? What's like, what's happening in your body when you, when you see a dog get really, really stressed. Okay. Well, we can manage that with breathing and perhaps relaxation and practice. We can manage the representation. We can manage the narrative and we can manage what we do, right? Mm-hmm. If we continue to run away, we're not challenging it. And therefore we need to sort of expose ourselves to some degree and recognize that not all dogs, there is, there is some risk in dogs, mm-hmm. but actually the risk is extremely low. But the same will be true of cars, right? Mm-hmm. There is some risk in driving a car, but the benefits of driving a car way outweigh the risk unless you get killed or unless you have a serious accident even then to be honest without a car you're really stuck aren't you and the same thing goes for planes in fact planes are historically some of the safest forms of transportation it turns out that since covid we don't need planes because we don't go anywhere (laughs) that's true we we don't need to go on foreign holidays (laughs) yeah Okay. Thank you for kind of showing that process. That's, um, I, I brought that up because that's something that happened to me, but I didn't go into the fear cycle. Um, the, the anxiety about it. I, I did have definitely about a, a year where I was more cautious around dogs. Um, and I still am very cautious. I, I, I take the information and I, I, I'm more careful to assess. And if dogs are fighting, I don't get between them. <laughs> oh, oh. So, so I've learned from my mistake um, type thing. But I, I know other people who've been through very similar experiences, not necessarily identical. And then their response moving forward is, I hate dogs. I'm, fr- I'm scared of dogs. Don't want to be around dogs. No, nothing. And, and I'm, I guess to a degree, it depends how much of a problem it is, you know? Yeah. Um, and there's there's a kind of sli- there's probably a slightly um, I want to say genetic but sort of evolutionary kind of element, right? Some people are terrified of of things mm-hmm. that they never ever see. Like in the UK here, for instance, you can go your whole life and never see a snake. <laughs> it's just you know yeah. there's no poison snake anyway. You, you go your whole life and never see a snake, and some people are terrified of spiders. Uh, and some people are terrified of, you know, all sorts of other things, which are actually very harmless, and you, you actually never see. But I've seen people who are terrified of spiders, and there are no poison spiders in the UK. But the interesting question is this, right? Okay, when you see a spider, like when you see the spider, how big does it seem to you? It always seems much bigger than it actually is. So their representation is 
engorged with fear in a sense. So it's a much bigger thing in here than it is out there. So in fact, they are giving their control away, their emotional control of the spider. So, you know, that's another sort of way of thinking about it. Change the representation, retain emotional control. That, that's really funny because that you should mention that because while I was living in the UK, people would regularly be like, I don't know how you could live in America. You've got rattlesnakes and brown recluses and black widows and all these other things. And then in the next part of the conversation, they talk about visiting their family in Australia. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a, that's a dangerous place. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, you guys have got, they've got more dangerous snakes and, and venomous insects and, and uh, arachnids than the United States has. Have you seen some of those dinner plate size spiders over there? Yeah. Of course, <laughs> then again, I'm also fascinated with spiders because I used to have that fear and I exposure therapy myself. And now when I see a spider, instead of going, I, I, I examine it, I look at it closely. And, and try to understand it a little bit better. Because again, most spiders are not venomous. Um, and even the venomous ones, with the exception of a, a very few, tend not to be aggressive or, or go after, um, especially anything that's larger than them. Um, and so, you know, now I, I, I watch videos of, of people playing with little spiders walking on their hands and stuff. And I'm like, I don't know if I could do that, but it's definitely cool to watch. <laughs> I think for, for most people, uh, you know, a sort of a, an, an indifference is probably a good place to be, you know, mm-hmm. okay, one way or another. Yeah, for mm-hmm. sure. I have that same thing with centipedes. Oh, well, yeah, but centipedes are almost universally aggressive. Mm-hmm. So... I don't know. <laughs> I think, I think yeah. that, that's an appropriate fear to have. <laughs> <laughs> well, I still, you know, how often do you see a, how often do you see a poison centipede? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I have it in the United States, but you know. Yeah. So the, yeah, a lot of them are instinctive fears, you know, that, uh, the, I'd have to say instinctive and, and sometimes they can get out of hand. So just been, a bit of modification brings them back to normal, you know? I mean, very few people are going to actually like a centipede. Certainly the, 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 the sort of tropical ones, the biggest ones. I mean, here we have things that are this big, you know, yeah. you just take them down, it's nothing. Um, no one's going to actually like a centipede, but then, you know, by and large, why should it let us, why should centipedes control our life? Why should spiders control our life, you know? Or snakes for that matter. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I guess uh, a big question I have for you that our audience will probably want to ask is if they want to access um, any self-help CBD pro- programs, um, what yeah. would you recommend? And do you have any programs that that you yourself or, or your organization offer that people could access? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, well, I was one of the originators, if not the originator of self of active self-help CBT. Okay. So for, first of all, if you're a healthcare worker, um, any kind of social care worker or healthcare worker, and you have an official email, you know, from an organization, then you can access completely free for life, something called anxiety wizard or nhs.co.uk. So that's anxiety wizard Number four, NHS, NHS.co.uk. So when the COVID thing started here, I created this program for healthcare workers so they could manage anxiety, worry, etc. 
So it's self-help CBT. It's free forever for all healthcare workers. So that's the first thing. Okay. And and so you said it's anxietywizard4.nhs. No, no. Anxietywizard4nhs.co.uk. And the four is the number four. Okay. And folks, okay. Uh, for those of you who don't know, NHS stands for National Health Insurance. Or sorry, National Health Service. National Health Service, yeah. Health Service, so, yeah. Uh, right, so that's the first thing. The second thing is, if you're a student, and students here in the UK are having a very poor time of it, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, lockdowns, all sorts of stuff, but student mental health is really, it's becoming a, you know, a more recognized issue, isn't it? If mm-hmm. you're a student, go to student, studentstressbuster.com. And you can get access to um, six of my online self-help CBT programs, uh, anxiety, panic, depression, self-esteem, mindfulness, overthinking, uh, worry, all that kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So that's, that's, that's for those. And if you're not a student or a, or a sort of a healthcare worker, Anxiety Wizard is the program. And just go to Dr. Purvis, so D-R-P-U-R-B-S, drpurvis.online, and it's right there on the front page, Anxiety Wizard. And uh, for those who do not... Um fall within those two um what's the cost for for individuals who want to be able to access these yep. sorts of things for, for uh, the largest self-help cbt program in the world anxiety wizard it is 39 pounds 99 a month mm-hmm. so the first week is free and then i'd say it's about 58 dollars a month okay for every month that you stay subscribed now some people go to the program more than once but in, in fairness you could go to the program in about three months, which will give you a full CBT treatment for panic, anxiety, depression, and stress for about $58 a month. I think that's pretty, it's, it's inexpensive, I have to say. Considering it's that. A, it's less than a Starbucks a day, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> and considering that uh, health costs for a weekly visit uh, type thing, um, that, that would be probably what your copay would be. In, in the in U.S. terms, <laughs> um, for was, each visit. I, I call, yeah, I call it 10%, less than 10% of what it would cost to see a therapist. And yeah. you have access, you know, like to everything that I know about therapy. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a good deal, actually. That is. And uh, that's actually one of, the, one of the values that I adhere to, is trying to help people to access ways that they can strengthen and improve themselves at a, at a, at a, dec- at a decreased, if not no cost. Um, because I feel like the world will get better for everyone if we are, I guess, more aware of ourselves and more aware of how to handle those, those inevitable things in life. I agree. Um, I agree. I think it has to be the way forward. You know, I mean, the, 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 it's a blended approach, right? Um, there are, between 2008 and 2018, um, between uh, women between the ages of 18 and 24, their rate of anxiety tripled. Mm. So that now 30% of, of females between 18 and 24 would be classified as having clinical anxiety. Now, that's just like, you know, but in 10 years, it's tripled. Yeah. So it's, that's going in the wrong direction. And I want people to be empowered to take control of their mental health, right? If you outsource your mental health, well, here in the UK or in the United States, mm-hmm. if you outsource your mental health to a, a professional, in a, 
in the first instance, you're likely to be medicated. And that's not a cure. That is just a management strategy. Mm-hmm. And you're likely, it is possible that you're going to have to stay on medication forever. Because I've seen people who are on that too. But that's, that's not solving the problem. And as soon as you come off the medication, it's like you're never on it. There's no, there's no protection. And so your relapse rate is high. <clears throat> and I have to say that in the, in the United States and in Britain, people who take medications have been sold a story which isn't really true, you know. Yeah, don't worry about, real, don't worry about withdrawal. Yeah, you'll be all right in a couple of weeks. No, withdrawal can be serious and it can be prolonged. And some people cannot withdraw from medications. So not only is it not a cure, it, the withdrawal, uh, more, than, more than 50% of people suffer difficult, prolonged and difficult withdrawal symptoms. Well, then so, there's the added challenge that like certain medications, like for example, SSRIs, um, your body gets used to and you have to increase the dose over time. Um, otherwise, it's going to have problems, which isn't to yeah. say that medication is not a good short-term solution while you're getting the help to address those things. I, I know quite a few people who have had such severe anxiety that they needed the medication just so that they could face the yeah. inner demons and, and, and learn those skills. But yeah. it's, and there's no shame in that, but there, there is definitely a very serious long-term health concern, magic pill concern behind just medicating it away. Well, that has been the, um, that's been the strategy. You might remember, Brian, do you know the National Football Stadium, the National Soccer Stadium, I apologize, in London is called Wembley Stadium. Yes, and, and, and you can call it football. I totally understand what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and it holds 90,000 people. Uh-huh. So when it's full of 90,000 people, 15,000 of those are on an antidepressant. Wow. Now, when I, when I see that image in my mind, right, I go, that's remarkable. You know, that is, that's the wrong solution. Mm-hmm. People need to be empowered to take back control of their mental health because n- nobody cares about your mental health more than you do. Mm-hmm. Right? If we outsource it, you just end up taking a, a I'm going to say taking a medication, right? Now, you could outsource it to a therapist, but at least a the therapist teaches you some skills that are useful. Mm-hmm. Or you could just learn the skills from my program. You don't have to pay a therapist, but you don't have to take an antidepressant. You just actually so okay, this is what I need to do. This is what I need to practice. Good. I'm, I'm working on, I'm doing something. I'm empowering myself. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming on and, and talking with us today, David. Is there any last things that you would like to tell our audience? And keep in mind, we have uh, folks listening from all over the world. Um, we've got a few folks in South America, as well as folks in Australia and New Zealand. So, Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, really, it's, it's, it's take back control of your mental health, right? Um, it, Brian said that he knows people who, you know, they had to take an antidepressant or an anxiolytic because it got so bad. Okay, let's not let it get bad, right? <laughs> mental health problems are like climbing a mountain. If you wait until you get to the top of the mountain, you're at the top of the mountain, right? You're at the peak. Let's deal with it much earlier on in the foothills when it's not such a problem, right? Let's actually consider mental health problems as just a life problem to solve. And we all have, in principle, mental health problems. The question is whether it gets so bad that it becomes a real 
uh, hamper, it hampers your life, right? So let's actually just do something to, to enable ourselves, enable us to get get on with life in a, in a reasonably successful way without having to get to the point of a mental health problem. Let's actually emphasize mental wellness. Okay, there we are. Agreed. All right, folks, thank you for joining us for um, Act, the Act Natural podcast. Um, keep in mind this podcast is an open source education material, which means that you can use all um, of it or part of it towards um, continuing education and helping people. Um, just remember to cite your sources. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Purvis, and uh, hope you have a wonderful day. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Enjoyed it.